Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly the views or opinions of the presenter. Nothing in here is the view of the firms, corporations, financial entities that anybody represents. Uh, Nothing expressed here is a view of any um, regulator or semi-regulatory agency. Uh, All content is intended to be educational. Nothing in this episode construes specific investment advice. And if you do require advice, you should seek an appropriate advisor, be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer. In the delivery of services and the reliance on financial planning software and technologies, uh, we felt that it was important to highlight the obligations that a certificate would have to their client in those circumstances. So they must understand the methodologies and technologies that have an impact on their projections. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome back to the Seek Drive podcast. Uh, this episode, I'll be interviewing uh, Damien LeBrun-Reed from FP Canada. Um, I, uh, I quite enjoy my conversations with Damien. I find she's always very open to discussing just everything that happens at FP Canada, very transparent, and I think you'll learn a lot from this. Uh, this episode is good for credits in Alberta for a life and an ANS credit. It'd be good for a Saskatchewan credit. It'd be good for a Manitoba credit, an Ontario credit, an IAS uh, credit. It'll be a professional responsibility credit from FP Canada. Um, So that's one of those elusive professional responsibility credits. It'd be good for a compliance credit from IROC. Again, one of those elusive compliance credits and a compliance credit from MFDA. Um, You might notice that I left Insurance Council of BC off that list. Because we don't talk about insurance at all in here, I don't believe this episode is going to be good for an insurance credit. So um, that's sort of the new rules in BC. Say you have to talk about insurance or something um, reasonably close to insurance in order to qualify. There could be an argument if you're in BC that if you are a CFP or QFP professional, that this would be good for credits. I don't want to assume too much there. The... Object for this episode. Um, we're out at the lake lot here, and you might notice this blue thing out over my right shoulder. That is our canoe. So, the object for today's episode is our canoe. It's actually under a tarp right now. I fear that it might spend the whole season under the tarp. My wife cannot go out on the water right now due to her ongoing uh, seizure activity. All right, let's roll into the episode here again. I, I just I enjoyed this uh, interview so much. Um, I find Demian has a great handle on um, what matters as far as actually creating good and useful um, regulation or semi-regulation for financial planners to operate under. 
I'm here today with Damien Lebrun-Reed. Uh, Damien is the uh, Director of oh, Regulatory Affairs. I've got it wrong already here, don't I, Damien? Help me out with the title. I am the Executive Director of the FP Canada Standards Council. There we go. Thanks. I uh, I always, and I have, since FP Canada sort of split off into the two organizations, I, I honestly struggle with this. I, I just old dog, new tricks, whatever it is. Damien. So can you tell us a little bit about your role at FP Canada, what that entails? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for having me on your podcast today. I'm really pleased to be here. Um, as I said, I am the executive director of the FP Canada Standards Council. And that means that I have broad oversight over all things in the Standards Council. The FP Canada Standards Council, I like to think of it as having three um, primary roles. The first is the administrative uh, administration and delivery of our certification exams, QAFP exam and CFP exam. The second is the uh, setting of certification policies related to how one obtains and maintains certification with us. And the third is the oversight of the profession in the public interest. And that involves the receipt um, and review of complaints, as well as oversight of our tribunal and enforcement process. And it's really those last two that I'd like to focus on here a little bit today. I know people are interested in the exams, but uh, that's and and I know you and I know the exam process well. But I think it's the other two that uh, that are going to be relevant to a lot of our listeners. Um, can you just give a little background about yourself? Sort of what did you do before you landed at um, I guess FPSC at the time, right? And yeah, um, and what have you done since? Sure. Um, so I'm still here. So nothing since. But um, I am, am a lawyer licensee licensed in the province of Ontario. So uh, I began my career. It's actually scary to think about this, but it's been 20 years about since I've been a lawyer. I began my career in private practice and I was a commercial litigator. I litigated in the areas of securities, but also quite a bit of health law litigation, as well as white collar fraud litigation at, a, uh, at uh, Bennett Jones LLP, which is a, a large law firm in Canada. I was there for uh, just over seven and a half years, and then I transitioned to the professional regulatory space, and I joined the Law Society of Ontario. It was then the Law Society of Upper Canada, which regulates lawyers in the province of Ontario. I was involved there in the investigation department. I moved to FP Canada about eight years ago in the role of Director of Enforcement, and then since have moved up to the position of Executive Director with the Standards Council. So I've been with FP Canada for almost eight years now. And I'm not mistaken here, you do some volunteer work still on the sort of like lawyer professional practice side, right? Um, I actually volunteer, thanks Jason for asking. Yeah, I volunteer in a couple capacities related to professional regulation and also um, in the administrative law context. So I'm just rolling off being the chair of the administrative law group at the Advocate Society that my terms just concluding in June. I um, And then I also do serve as a public member of the discipline panels for the Ontario Teachers College, where I hear discipline proceedings involving regulated teachers in the province of Ontario. And and I do the same type of work for the human resources uh, organization that oversees human resource professionals in Ontario, where I volunteer as a chair of a regulatory committee uh, with them. And I find um, all of that volunteer activity very, very rewarding. And it really does also help me ensure that our own practices at FP Canada 
are keeping pace with regulatory practices in other um, organizations, um, primarily in Ontario, because that's where I'm called as a lawyer, but generally across Canada. It's, I, I do agree with you that uh, volunteering, getting out there, it, it expands your own knowledge for your own job. And I don't think it really matters, like choosing the perfect volunteer job. It's just getting out there, right? It's, yeah, that's great. It's definitely rewarding. And it's a great way to network with colleagues, but also, you know, get into spaces that you're a little bit uncomfortable with and grow. Um, so I agree completely. I'm sure you know something about the curriculum in Ontario that the rest of us wouldn't know, for example, like just from working with teachers. No, I'm strictly oh. on the enforcement side there. Okay. So no insights on curriculum other than the <laughs> fact that I have two kids in the school system uh, myself, but I hear it as a parent like everybody else does. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Um, I know it's a hot topic issue today. So. <laughs> now, you mentioned specifically that you're at FP Canada on the standards um, sorry, Standards Council side. Yes. And now there's the Institute. So can you just talk a little bit about that division at FP Canada and how that works? Yeah. So in uh, January of 2020, FPSC, as it was then known, uh, became FP Canada. And in the transition between FPSC and FP Canada, we also created new divisions within FP Canada. So the FP Canada Standards Council, which essentially um, is the division that delivers on the products and services that FPSC delivered on, including enforcement in the public interest. And the FP Canada Institute, which is the division of FP Canada with um, oversight over professional education for our uh, certificates and the develop and um, continuing education programs and delivery uh, to support the profession, as well as practice guidelines. Um, although the current focus in its because the institute's in its infancy still, um, has been on the development of professional education programs uh, for our candidates for certification and continuing education programs for our certificates. And of course, lots being done on that front. There's tons of education work I see rolling out of um, the Institute regularly. So always, it'll be interesting to keep an eye on what happens there. And of course, we keep the divisions. Um, the reason there are two divisions, just to finish the thought and loop back to the original question, is really to ensure that there is that separation between our certification exams and our professional education programs, um, so that uh, there's no there's no volunteer cross-population or staff uh, population really to ensure the integrity of both processes. Yeah, you want, you want basically the education program to be developed sort of independent of the exam. Of course, both connect back up to body of knowledge, but it, that exam can't be generated by the same people writing textbook content or that kind of thing, right? Perfectly said, Jason. Yep. Perfect. All right. It's like I like I live that every day or something. Damian, right? <laughs> so, uh, so then, can we talk a little bit about the standards of professional responsibility? Of course, this is one of your your main um, roles here, and the standards influence. I think not just certificates, QFP and CFP certificates, but I think they do have some influence beyond the beyond just. Um, certificates here. So I, I do find them a really interesting area to explore. Um, can you talk just what your role is with respect to the standards? Yeah, so let me tell you a little bit if I might, and it, and bring me back if I get off track, Jason, but let me talk to you about how the standards are developed and maintained, because that will provide context for my role in that process. So the standards, uh, professional 
conduct, which contain the code of ethics, the rules of conduct, the fitness standards, and the practice standards. It's one document with four sections. Those are maintained by the standards panel. And the standards panel is a panel of volunteer um, individuals, a combination of CFP professionals, a public member, and a representation from IQPF in through the PLFIN designation members. And that panel is broadly responsible for uh, the standards of the profession, as well as the competency profile, which is another standard. And so what will happen is that from time to time, that group, the standards panel, will identify that there should be a review or a consideration of a new rule or an amendment um, just and then uh, they might form a working group that would make recommendations back to that standards panel and that process might result in changes to the rules. At the same time, at a staff level, we are responsible for just ensuring that if something is coming of concern or if there is a change in the regulatory or planning profession environment, that we bring that to the standards panel's attention and let the standards panel engage in a discussion about the impact or downstream effects of such a change. So the most recent changes to the standards of profession standards of professional responsibility really were more of an environmental maintenance um, types of changes. But in the past, there have been the introduction of new rules, which is the result of the standards panel's recognition of changing times and the need for a new rule in the public interest. So hopefully and that- I do that want to explore. Oh, sorry. Question. Question. Yeah. yeah. No, I hope that's kind of where you're going. And I know you want to drill down, but hopefully yeah. that provides some context to the standards panel's work and also the staff responsibility to bring um, environmental changes and scans for currency to the standards panel. So they the, the volunteers there, the panel would be the primary drivers of activity on that front. It's kind of, it, it can go both ways, Jason. It's really a dialogue. So they are required to review the standards and discuss whether maintenance is required on an annual basis as part of their work plan. But staff also, of course, has a vested interest in making sure the public interest is protected and also that the standards can live in practice. So we also are um, cognizant of those those issues and we would come to the standards panel and just say here's what we're hearing from industry here's what we're hearing from professionals here's what we're hearing from public or we've seen complaints in this area is it do we need to address this so it's really a i would say a dialogue um, but the standards panel has the ultimate responsibility and the ultimate authority perfect so then um the, the standards panel comprises like you said volunteers yes how do folks get to be volunteers on that panel uh, so there's a number of ways that that could happen. Um, on renewal application forms, certificates can identify their interest in volunteering with FP Canada, and that would go into a database of individuals who are interested. And also, there are times when we would do a direct call to our certificates or to the public where there's a vacancy or a particular skill set or area that we are recruiting for. So there's there's different ways that could happen. It could be in a CFP professional newsletter from FP Canada. It could be in a, a, a posting on our volunteer portion of our website. It could be in some direct outreach. Um, but it's when we are setting the standards panel membership, 
members are members have a three-year term that's renewable to a maximum of six years on the panel. So there is not we try to stagger the terms uh, to avoid a lack of continuity and knowledge on the panel. And then, of course, we're very cognizant of ethnic, ge geographic, gender, but also practice experience and type. Uh, diversity. So we, when we look at our panel composition, we really are trying to have a panel that reflects the public and the profession, and that reflects the national scope of FP Canada's oversight. And so there's a lot of moving parts. So someone might a volunteer and be a very qualified and excellent uh, volunteer candidate, but we may have too many representatives from Alberta, for example, in that particular session and have to hold someone's application for a future vacancy. So there's a, there is quite a bit of balancing that goes on there, but in the end, it's really our goal is to have a diverse panel that represents the profession and the public appropriately. Nice. I'm a big fan of a six-year cap on terms there too. I uh, I find that it frees up volunteers because you don't like you're not. It's not a life sentence volunteering, and, uh, <laughs> and yeah. you get some fresh blood in there too. So yeah. So what about then? I and I know that so the the panel or you know you working with the panel, you'll come up with a possible change, and typically this goes for feedback, right? There's some sort of consultation process. Where the change is substantive, that would be the case, yes. So, for example, when we introduced the new rules of technology, we did go out with surveys to our certificates um, in advance of developing the rules, but then also once the rules were further through the development process, where the changes are uh, more maintenance-related changes without a substantive change, we would not necessarily go out for consultation. Which makes sense. You know, you're, you're not going to get... And I, rem I, I don't know if you recall, I participated when the technology um, uh, consultation period was open. And, but the, yeah, I don't recall that happening with this most recent round of changes, which now makes sense yes. to me. So yeah, Yes, we did not do a public consultation. And actually, that's a decision that the standards panel would weigh in on. So in the work plan for the updates, they would weigh in on whether a public consultation or consultation was uh, necessary in that form. But it's not to say that we don't have... Um, input because, of course, the standards panel is composed of representatives of the profession. And so they bring not only their standards panel hat, but their profession hat, their industry hat, their independent planner hat. They bring the hats that they wear and they provide feedback um, in that process as well. And of course, our public member on the standards panel represents the public interest in that process. Makes sense. Um, so what about other organizations? And I'm thinking like FP Canada does not exist in a vacuum. Um, you're, and I don't know what the proper word is, but a, a sort of member organization of the Financial Planning Standards Board, right? The international standard setting body. Um, you know, does the relationship with FPSB uh, determine at all what goes into the, the standards? So we are a member territory in Canada of the Financial Planning Standards Board, and the Financial Planning Standards Board does set minimum standards for all of its all of the organizations that are members. Um, those minimum standards are obviously reflective of the differences across twenty six different uh, territories. And um, so, FP Canada certainly strives to meet those minimum standards, but I. I don't think I'm 
I don't think I'm being a, a braggart when I do say that we exceed the, the minimum standards. And so changes there would not necessarily result in changes um, to FB Canada standards of professional responsibility. But of course, we would always, always take a look when FPSB issues global standards to ensure that we have alignment, uh, because we know that our professionals don't operate in a vacuum either. We know that the uh, financial planning profession is national, it's global, it's it's, you know, it, it operates in an ecosystem. And so, of course, we want to ensure compliance with those minimum standards. And what about the, and I, I know, there, I t- think technically not an FPSB member, the US CFP board, any sort of discussion back and forth there? So um, their standards are of professional responsibility wouldn't impact our requirements as directly. Um, but as a sister organization and an organization in the United States, and we know that a lot of our um, certificates operate at entities that have presences in both Canada and in the United States, we are in very close contact with their enforcement and standard setting teams, and we have dialogue um, back and forth, but they have a very different uh, regulatory framework that they operate in, and they also have um, different rules. For example, they do have a fiduciary obligation in the United States uh, under CFP board's rules, which we do not have in the same, we do not have, we have a client duty of loyalty obligation here uh, in Canada. So they're not connected in that same way where we don't have, we don't follow CFP board and they don't follow us, but we do engage in a dialogue back and forth. I do recall that the technology rules came out right about the same time from US CFP board. And I can't remember which one was first, but I think the rules were, were pretty close to one another in sort of form and uh, and timeline. So that's that's what always made me think about that connection. That's actually an interesting observation, Jason. I hadn't actually made that connection myself, but I would say that when uh, FP Canada does consider new standards, we all we also do environmental scans um, to make sure that our rules are appropriate or applicable in practice. So um, we would do environmental scans of our of allied professions of other uh, credentialing bodies that are in the same framework because. One thing we don't want is to issue standards that are in discord with anyone in the financial planning ecosystem. For example, if we issued standards that were um, adverse or in discord with IROC or the MFDA and our certificates were mutually licensed with IROC or the MFDA, that would create a tension for our certificates. And that's not the goal. The goal of professional oversight is really to uh, be able to meet all of your professional obligations you know, if you're a lawyer, accountant, and a CFP professional, you should be able to wear all of those hats and meet all of your obligations concurrently. So we do do environmental scans. And I think probably technology is something that's on every regulatory body's mind. <laughs> so. okay. Yeah, interesting. I'm going to have to go back and look at exactly when the US changed theirs. And I, if I recall correctly, yours was early 2020, wasn't it? Is that right? Or was that early 2021? Oh, Goodness, you're testing me. I wanted to say it was the fall of 2020, but that was neither of your options. Yeah, so that's I fair. <laughs> I, it's a bad question, Damien. All right. It, it's re- in the last, uh, it's it's recent, in the last 18 months. Though. That's fair. All right, thanks. Um, so on that note, actually, can we just talk about those two sets of rule changes, the two most recent? So uh, just this year, yeah. I, think, I don't even know if it's actually taken hold yet, but rule 13 has changed to add accessible and understandable so that when I'm 
Yes. If I were a CFP professional delivering advice, the expectation is that advice is accessible and understandable. Is this an inclusivity, like a nod to inclusivity, Demian? Is this what we're doing here? Yes. So equity, diversity, and inclusiveness is extremely important to FP Canada, the FP Canada board, and of course, all of us at FP Canada, as well as I'm sure every member of the profession. Um, and we have always interpreted the rule actually to require that a certificate would tone their communications to the client that's in front of them. That's part of professional presentation. So if you have a client in front of you who, uh, you know, is uh, hearing impaired or visually impaired, you wouldn't rely on the same presentation of information as you would with a client who didn't have uh, a need for accessibility or accommodation in that way. Uh, but what we did was really kind of embed that more um, overtly into the rule. And I think that really also highlights the importance of equity, diversity, inclusion, and access to financial planning, which is really a key, uh, fundamentally important principle for FB Canada and for our board, which is that all Canadians who would like to have access to qualified financial planning professionals and financial planning advice can have that access. And so this is uh, signaling, I think, in a small way, but I think an important way, the importance of ensuring accessibility of your advice. Yeah, I think this overlaps a little bit. If I recall correctly, it was the 2021. I think I have this one right, the ethics breakfast, where you talked about the requirement to use, for example, translation services where somebody might not be um, using English as a first language. Yes, good memory. And so this is something, as I said, that we've always kind of taken the perspective of, but when we were um, looking at the rules for an update for uh currency and just to ensure um, that they were reading well and that we were capturing everything, we recognized that it wasn't as overt in the rule as we thought it could be. Yeah, perfect. That's I think that's a really good example of a sort of maintenance issue. That's that's helpful. Thanks. And then the second most recent set of changes, this was a I don't know, a less obvious change, I guess not a housekeeping issue, but really the introduction of rules 28 and 29 dealing with the the certificates expectation or the expectation on the certificate to understand their technology. Can you chat a little bit more about this one? Yes, definitely. Those rules uh, actually were introduced in that time frame that you and I have just recently discussed and can't quite nail down, but recently, and those were actually um, what people see now in print, Rule 28 and 29 relating to technology and the guidance associated with that was the subject of extensive consultation. And as you said, you participated in that consultation uh, process yourself. So this really is a recognition that financial Professional financial planners rely heavily on technology when providing financial planning services to their clients. That's I don't think that's going to be uh, uh, breaking news to anybody. Um, and so in that, in the delivery of services and the reliance on financial planning software and technologies, uh, we felt that it was important to highlight the obligations that a certificate would have to their client in those circumstances. So they must understand the methodologies and technologies that have an impact on their projections. So for example, and, and um, I am not a financial planner myself, so I hope I don't, I don't embarrass myself here, but for example, if the tax rules in the back end of the software are um, presuming an allocation to one spouse first and the other spouse second, it would be important that a planner would know about that so that when the 
outcome is outputted to the client, they can explain to them the assumptions that went into it and even modify assumptions where it doesn't reflect the client's reality. So that's an important thing for a a planner to understand. They must also understand the, oh, I said the assumptions underlying the technology, and they must validate the inputs and the assumptions used are reasonable and appropriate for the client and their circumstances. So we have had complaints to the Standards Council where the data that was put into the planning software was not reflective of the client's actual situation and circumstances. So that uh, input, there was an error made in that happens. Uh, Planners are human. um, And that happens, there can be an error. But what this really is saying is that if there's an error made, you should be catching it on the output as well. So you have to be looking with a critical eye at the inputs and the outputs to make sure that they are reasonable and appropriate for the client who's sitting in front of you, so that that error doesn't get repeated and picked up and relied on, you know, for years forward. And there could be a real consequence to someone if you added a zero, um, or (laughs) took away a zero, or or put a, a not applicable in one section that was. So these are the kinds of things that planners have to take responsibility for. The technology provides great support and a great service, and it does a lot of, um, you know, of calculations on the back end in a way that uh, speed up the process and let the planner focus on the human interaction. But the planner still has an obligation and a professional responsibility to confirm the accuracy of the outputs and the inputs to make sure it's in the client's best interest. Yeah, I, I really like this change, you know, from the educator's perspective here, you know, I spend a lot of time on the financial calculator in class and people say, well, you know, I've got financial planning software to do this. Well, hang on a second here. Do you, how much confidence do you have that the inputs and, and the outputs are sort of reflective of, um, of your or of what's really happening with that client? So, yeah, I thought, just, I thought yes, that was a, a reminder that there's still a people part to the process, even where there's a technology, there's still a person in front of you as a client and that you as a planner are a person. And so you have responsibility um, overlaying the technology. And then of course, um, one of the other changes was rule 29, which requires that the rationale and assumptions are documented and understood by the client. I think, um, I think planners recognize that the assumptions that go into preparing a plan really do change the outcome and the projection under the plan. And so it's important that the clients understand those assumptions, because if there's a material change in one of those assumptions, it's important that as a planner, the client's coming back to you and saying, you know what, actually, I just took a different job and I have a decrease in my salary. And I know that one of your assumptions was this salary or this cash flow assumption. And so it's very important that clients are partners with the planner in the development of their plan and have the opportunity to give feedback, input, and to validate assumptions or to question, why did you make this assumption? How does it relate to my documents? Those types of things. And in my personal view, those that type of transparency to a client really promotes trust, but it also promotes dialogue and dialogue leads to relationship building. So that, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Again, I'm a big fan of both of those real changes. So um, well done to the, all those involved with that. Now, I recently had a student reach out. You mentioned you know, the four components to the standards and one of those areas being the bars to certification. Mm-hmm. 
So, and I know you can't comment on specific cases, and I think every answer here ultimately is going to be, it depends, um, the lawyer's answer, right? Or the financial <laughs> planner's answer. Um, but can we talk about um, how the, first off, can you just give a little outline of what the BARS certification are and what they're intended to do? Yes, of course. So the fitness standards, which contain the bars to certification, are the good character requirements for new certificates coming into the certification framework and for those who are seeking to renew and maintain their certification. And essentially, they set out the barriers to new or continued certification that are presumptive under our rules. It doesn't mean, and I know you're going to go there, but it doesn't mean that somebody who has a historic bankruptcy could never become a certified financial planning professional or a QAFP professional, but they are there to indicate the character requirements um, that, so a lot of regulators would call them good character requirements. We call them fitness standards, but it's the same concept. So they are requirements uh, for entry and for continued certification. And as you know, and as your listeners might know, certification with FB Canada is renewed on an annual basis. So the compliance with those requirements is open for review on an annual basis, as well as an ongoing basis by FB Canada. Perfect. So the intention here then is, like you say, good character. I'm actually interested. I, I didn't prepare you for this question, Tevian, so maybe we'll have to do some editing afterwards. But, you know, there was a couple of years ago, um, this uh, Jason Zweig expose in the New York Times about, you know, there's 83,000 certificates in the United States. And it turned out that there was a sampling there of folks who had pretty egregious stuff in their past that mm-hmm. it turns out that the CFP board U.S., mm-hmm. uh, hadn't hadn't noted hadn't paid attention to you know some version of that and you know so that gets to how do we monitor how do we monitor our certificates so um like most or many i think most is fair professional oversight bodies we are a complaints based and a complaints-based process we also have a process on our annual certification renewal application forms whereby we ask our certificates to declare whether or not they have take for example entered into a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy or being charged with a criminal offense or pled guilty to a criminal offense so that is an annual requirement to transparently disclose that to FP Canada. That's part of our ability to oversee the profession is that members of the profession recognizing the importance of professional oversight, recognizing the importance of high standards, will self-disclose to FP Canada and properly and accurately answer those questions. So, you know, there could be circumstances where someone answers no, and the correct answer was yes. So in those circumstances, FP Canada has a number of monitoring tools that we employ to try and find um, conduct of concern not just the fitness standards, but any conduct of concern, and I'll walk you through that. Um, But we also are very reliant on our certificates making proper, true, and accurate declarations. And so I'm not going to stand here and say that it's not possible that there could be somebody who was convicted of something that FP Canada doesn't hear about at that time. Um, But that's not to say that we don't strive to do that. So here's how it is that we monitor uh, the conduct of our certificates. Uh, We have a number of different tools that we use. 
first and foremost, we rely heavily on our certificates to be accurate and truthful with us. But in addition to that, we have um, memorandum of understandings and agreements with some other regulatory bodies where we can share some information and they can share some information about dual licensed or certified individuals with each other so we can let them know and they can let us know that is in the public interest that there be continuity between oversight bodies and regulators. We also monitor civil uh, reporting databases for civil claims that are that are or findings or court orders that might involve our certificates. We monitor media publications for any concerns with respect to our certificates, and we do monitor other regulatory news releases. So FP Canada actually recently um, developed and published a subscription service, and I would encourage all of your listeners and you, Jason, yourself, to sign up. And when you register for that subscription service, you would receive an email every time we take action at the discipline level against our certificate or issue a statement of allegations against a certificate. That's something that most regulatory professional oversight bodies do. And so we, FP Canada, subscribe to other regulators' bodies in the same way. And we know that other regulatory bodies subscribe to our subscription service. And that way we try to have information that everybody else has. So if someone has failed to report something to us or they've inaccurately reported that they're not the subject of something and we find out that they were, um, that's actually misleading FP Canada. And that would in itself be a breach of our standards. Okay, that's a good answer. And I don't think anybody's expecting perfection here. And we know that there's a heavy self-reporting um, process to this, but still there's there's other stuff happening there. I think that, and I will check out that subscription. You know, I as you know, I visit your website from time to time. So maybe that'll save me a, a manual trip over to the website. So that's good. Um, yeah, that's part of our transparency and increased public access. We're constantly looking for tools that we can do to kind of make it easier. And also, you know, for our certificates, it's a good way to see the type of conduct that could be found offside. And I think that can be a learning opportunity for certificates who are doing everything right, but still want to understand how are the rules being interpreted by a hearing panel. That's fair. Um, now, what about then, so you, you talked about, you know, previous bankruptcy might not be a showstopper, you know, you'd go through the facts, obviously. I assume it's the same for a previous criminal matter, you would go through the facts and... You know. So the way that the process works, and just so that everybody uh, knows I'm, they don't have to take notes while I'm talking, um, FP Canada publishes a document called the Disciplinary Rules and Procedures that's published on our website. And that document... Uh, is the roadmap to how complaints and other matters are handled at FP Canada. It sets out timelines that are imposed on us, timelines on the certificate. Um, and in that, there is a section that deals with fitness standard breaches. And so the process for a fitness standard, which is the presumptive bars, which you're speaking about, is that when FP Canada it becomes aware of a presumptive bar, we would notify the certificate that the conduct does present a presumptive bar to renewed or new certification. They are provided with an opportunity to submit a document called a request for reconsideration. And that is a document where the certificate is essentially asserting that they are of good character and that they should be certified notwithstanding this conduct. Those decisions and those those submissions are then uh, reviewed by our conduct review panel. 
And the conduct review panel is a panel of volunteers and members of the public, uh, and their job is akin to a screening committee. So they look at investigation reports and reports on fitness standard matters, bars to certification, and they make a determination about escalation or closure. In the case of a fitness standard matter, they have the power and authority also set out in the disciplinary rules and procedures. So invite everybody to, it's not the not the funnest read, but if you have nothing else to do, invite you to read those rules. Um, that they have the authority to allow certification despite the fitness, the barrier to certification, or they can refer the matter to a hearing panel. And then it, then it would ultimately be up to a hearing panel to determine. So we do have some published decisions relating to bankruptcy. So I can speak about a published decision, but I would say that um, when you think about our funnel of complaints and what would make it to a hearing panel, I want I don't want anyone to think that this represents the norm because the number of complaints that come in it funnels down at every level, right? So every level is a point of escalation. And at a point of escalation, it, the numbers funnel. But we do have reported decisions where an individual is in current bankruptcy and where the hearing panel found that there was a connection to their practice or their ability to provide, um, you know, to, there was a public protection concern related to the reason for the bankruptcy. And in those instances, someone might not be allowed to stay, may have to come back into certification when they've been discharged from bankruptcy. So that would only occur, or I, the case law tells us that would occur where there's a real nexus between the bankruptcy and the ability to provide public protection in practice. And um, so I think there are other instances where bankruptcy may well be the result of, uh, you know, a, a, a car accident, a loss of income related to a marital breakdown or other circumstances where that matter may not escalate to a hearing panel. That makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, very, in the end, I, I guess you have the opportunity to, to treat people like people, right? It's not, not such a hard and fast set of rules that but At every not. stage of our process, Jason, we really, uh, our certificates have the opportunity to be part of that process and to uh, provide relevant information and documentation to the Standards Council so that our conduct review panel, our hearing panels have information in front of them that represents the Standards Council's position in respect of the allegations and the certificate's response in respect to those allegations. So as a matter of fairness, of course, certificates always have that opportunity to participate. And in fact, um, we want certificates to be participating in our process. I think it's worth noting too, that the hearing panel and the conduct review panel, those are uh, primarily certificates themselves. Those are people who are out in industry. I'm not misinterpreting that. So the conduct review panel is composed of uh, practicing financial planners, and there's also public representation on that panel, because uh, that's an important voice, the public voice. The hearing panels, um, we have a roster, so that's a pool of qualified members who are trained and available to sit on discipline hearing panels. There's a large pool, and then every discipline hearing panel is composed of three members from that pool, two of whom would be CFP professionals or QAFP professional, and one of which is typically a regulatory lawyer uh, acting as a public member. Interesting. Okay. Um, 
and I know a few of the folks who volunteer in that capacity. And, you know, it's always, uh, it, again, that goes back to that whole idea about volunteering that we talked about previously. So. Well, you know, the Standards Council and FB Canada really couldn't do the work that we do without all of our amazing, dedicated, really volunteers who give so much of themselves. Um, and I hope that they get a lot back in return that they're supporting their profession, but we really couldn't do what we do and operate in the public interest without our volunteers. Thanks, Tim. Yeah. So can we then talk about enforcement? This overlaps quite a bit with what we've just talked about. So how is it that somebody would end up in front of FP Canada with an enforcement issue or a disciplinary issue? So I'm going to start at the complaint end because the complaints flow into the enforcement and discipline. And there's kind of three ways in which we typically would receive a complaint. So a complaint could come to FP Canada from a member of the public. And we do have um, a complaint form available on our website for public the public for public access. It could also be a matter that a certificate has disclosed to FP Canada during the renewal. So there is a requirement to advise us where there have been client complaints about your conduct that could result in a complaint that's initiated at FP Canada. And it could also be as a result of FP Canada coming into information through a media release, uh, through a regulatory newsletter, through our own searches that has caused us uh, to initiate a complaint by FP Canada against the certificate. So that's how complaints come in. Once a complaint comes into FP Canada, um, and I should say that at a our complaints and our investigations are strictly confidential. So um, at that stage, there's no publication. We don't publicize the fact that there's been a complaint or an investigation, except where there is a significant risk of harm to the public, um, in which cases we require a special order to do that. It's very rare. Um, when a complaint comes in, there's an assessment period of about up to 90 or 120 days, depending on the complexity in which we would engage and gather information from the certificate and maybe from the complainant if it was a public complaint. Um, we recognize at FB Canada that like anywhere else, uh, anybody can make a complaint. So really it's important that that complaint be substantiated. Um, and so matters could be closed at that after that initial review or where something requires additional review, it might be escalated to one of our staff investigators and the staff investigators are then, uh, it would then engage in interviews with witnesses, with the certificate, with gathering documentation. And of course, again, I'm highlighting how much the certificate really plays a role here. So they would be responding to questions, participating in an interview, providing documents, responding to the complaints that are coming in, like having an opportunity to see what is being said about them and to respond. And then that after that whole process, that's when our screening committee, the conduct review panel, really is engaged to determine whether the matter would then escalate to a public hearing. So it's at that stage where the conduct review panel makes that determination. And if a matter is escalated by the conduct review panel, who has authority over that decision, um, then we would issue a statement of allegations. And that's when we issue a document that's public that says these are the allegations that FP Canada is making against this certificate. And of course, we have the burden to prove those allegations. And the certificate um, has every right to dispute those allegations. So that's kind of a, a general strokes of how things would get to an enforcement proceeding. 
So I've got a couple of follow-on questions from that. So you mentioned this example earlier when we talked about the technology rules where you know a certificate had um, missing, had made had used a wrong assumption, something different presumably than what the client told or provided to them. So you know if that's a client initiated complaint, mm-hmm. you would then come back to the client and say, okay, show us what you or tell us what you provided to the certificate. And then you know that's kind of the basis for uh, or and then you know show us the 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 uh, produced document that the certificate gave you. You would compare those two things, and that that gives you enough to go on. Is that kind of how that works? Well, at a very initial process, that might give us enough to to go on. But of course, we would also want the certificate side of the story. Yes. So we'd want to know. You know, the certificate might say, actually, I have a different copy of that document in my file, and this is the difference between the documents. Or they might say, you know what, I made that mistake, and and I made it because of X, Y, and Z, and here's what I tried to do to fix that mistake. And so, or they might say, I didn't make a mistake, and the documents show that there was one. So they're every, it's so fact specific, and it can be so nuanced, but um, we would gather information until we feel that we have enough to go on. So we, we don't just get what we get and stop it. We would get what we get, we receive, we ask questions back, we ask follow-up questions, and we give the certificate an opportunity to respond to that complaint. And again, at that point, it's all confidential, and there's that's completely confidential in our process. And so the the point at which confidentiality is lost that, and I can't, sorry, I forget the name of the document, but where you, you put somebody's name on the website and you say, this person is now, um, you know, potentially going to go to a disciplinary hearing and so forth. That yeah. That's a pretty, like, if I'm a financial planner, I don't want my name on there for obvious yeah. reasons. It's, you know, you, you, you do a lot of work in this industry to maintain client trust and so forth. Um, how do you sort of view that trade-off, like protecting the public on the one hand and then not, you know, unfairly maligning somebody on the other? So I think I think there are two perspectives to that consideration, um, as you've pointed out quite rightly, Jason. And I would start by saying that FP Canada, like all professional oversight bodies, operates in the public interest. So we are guided by the public interest. I would also say that the public's perception and trust in individual planners can influence their trust in the profession as an entirety. So I think if you think about, um, if you saw a news report about a financial planner who had stolen, you know, a 92-year-old's retirement savings, that would cast a a light over the entire profession. So I would say that's why it's important that we're here and, and making sure that where there is misconduct, it's identified and remediated or resolved um, through a discipline outcome because that action by FP Canada helps to promote the the integrity of the entire profession. So that's that's my perspective on that. I think that it promotes trust in everybody else who's acting in the profession that we're watching and that we will take action. So the stage at which those allegations would become public is after the screening committee conduct review panel has made a determination that there is sufficient evidence presented in the investigation, which might be the culmination of a year's worth of work. So this isn't... This isn't something that we get and we make a decision. This is a fully investigated process with reports, opportunity for their certificates, 
interviews of witnesses, clients, examination of documentation. We take this very seriously because you're quite right that it's not, it's a significant step to publish someone's name with allegations. Um, and we don't want to take that step lightly. We want to take it where we think it's in the public interest. So for me, I think the balance is the process to get there has to have integrity the process to get there has to be fair to the certificate. It has to be transparent through our rules to understand what you can expect, what's happening. Um, our investigators need to be professional and they need to be unbiased. And then our conduct review panel needs to be unbiased. They need to be free of conflict and they need to have the public interest perspective in mind. And that all of those components protect the integrity of the process, which can be confidence that when a statement of allegations is issued, it's issued on the basis that there, that FP Canada can prove the allegations. I would also add that um, our prosecutor has a professional obligation as a prosecutor to only make allegations that she feels she can prove. So it would not be appropriate for her professionally to advance an allegation that she does not feel can be substantiated. That's not to say that FB Canada will prove every allegation as published. I mean, there's a hearing panel and they may come to a different result, but she has a professional obligation not to make an assertion that she doesn't feel professionally confident. Right. And I think that, you know, if, if you're looking at this from the perspective of a certificate and you say that, well, that's not fair, that a name can be published before, you know, everything is 100% done. Well, the trade-off there is that if FP Canada doesn't take the, like a high bar for the, the profession seriously, that it, it really sullies the, the brand, right? Like that's- but That's so 100% the balance. And that's, I, I agree with you completely. The fact that FP Canada is there taking action should- Ele elevate serves to elevate the entire profession in the public's mind, I believe. Yeah, I think so. I, you know that that New York Times expose I talked about before. I think is a good example of that, where you you do run the risk if you don't if you're not doing your job well. You know it, that also that can reflect negatively on the you know roughly eighteen thousand certificates out there, right? I, I think absolutely. I the, yeah, whatever the number is. Wait, now, uh, so. seventeen thousand. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, perfect. Thanks. Um, okay. So then. Uh, can we go through um, maybe a little bit more? Is there anything on the disciplinary process we haven't talked about? You did a pretty good job, I think. I, I think I find the investigations thing interesting here. You know, you talk about the chief investigator. Can you chat a little bit more about maybe what happens in an investigation, if there's anything you didn't cover already? Um, so, I mean, every investigation is driven by the facts before. But what I can say is that uh, we have staff investigators who are um, employed at FP Canada who are experts in their field of regulatory investigation. And their job is they don't make determinations of credibility. They don't make determinations of outcome. Their job is to gather and present the facts. And so their job is to take the allegations that have come from the complaint and gather the facts relevant to those allegations through documents, through witness interviews, through the certificate, and then present those facts in an unbiased report that kind of provides the information that the conduct review panel needs to assess whether there has been a breach of our rules. And if there has been a breach, the severity and the appropriate outcome as a result of that breach. Okay. So it could be, for example, that there are the investigation reveals evidence that does support that there is a breach, but the conduct review panel might say, 
yes, there was a breach, but in this instance, we're going to issue guidance instead of send it to a hearing because there are these mitigating factors, X, Y, and Z, um, that came out in the investigation and weren't a remedial approach. And in those instances, the fact of that complaint and investigation would never be publicized, but the certificate might receive a letter from our conduct review panel of guidance and advice, letting the letting them know that this is where their conduct went offside. And in the future, this is what they should not do or they should avoid doing. And that is a remedial approach that helps to serve to give guidance to our certificates so that they know how to conduct themselves professionally, ethically, and in accordance with our standards. And then when you issue those kinds of letters, um, I've, I think if I remember it correctly, um, you know, I see that show up in your your newsletter sometimes too, where you'll say like, we're aware that this kind of activity is happening just, you know, to the 17,000 odd readers of this document. Are you so implementing that's a this separate, in your practice? Yeah, so we do do that as well. Thanks for raising that, Jason. That's actually a separate uh, head of guidance that our conduct review panel does issue. And that is typically annually, but not always, they will focus in on an area where they think the profession might benefit from a general learning yes. or explanation of a rule, and they will publish it. But the letters that I'm speaking about are really tailored specific yeah. to the facts and to this. But you're right, if they see a pattern of misconduct or a pattern of maybe a misunderstanding of one of our rules, then they will issue a guidance document um, and I, I believe that they are currently considering doing that with respect to technology and the use of technology. And I think that reflects the new rules and also just to ensure that our certificates understand them. It's really educational. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, and I wasn't meaning to conflate the two just to, to make a connect. Like the one can yeah. lead to the other. That's that's all. Absolutely, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, perfect. Um, so given that FP Canada is not strictly speaking, a regulator, right? Mm -hmm. You you really are- We're not uh, a statutory regulator. We don't have statutory it. powers. Yes, yep. perfect, thanks. Um, so how does that inform the sort of the limits of what you can do or what you, you know, what's available to you as far as uh, your regular or your, your uh, disciplinary toolbox, let's say, or enforcement toolbox? Well, it um, we're not the only non-statutory regulators, so I'll start by saying that we're in good company with other uh, professional oversight bodies, some other professional oversight bodies. I would say that um, from our disciplinary toolbox, uh, we don't have, for example, the power to compel witnesses at a hearing uh, or to summon a witness to a hearing. So that's a it might sound like a that might sound small, but that can be an important um, power for some regulatory proceedings. Um, certificates are required to cooperate in our process, so that's separate. But we don't have the power to compel other witnesses. Um, and another thing that, and this is not because we're st not statutory, but another power that we do not have is the issuing of fines. So unlike, uh, for example, the MFDA or IROC which may issue a fine against a, against one of their members. FB Canada does not issue fines as part of its disciplinary outcomes. We will seek costs, and that is uh, so that 17,000 certificates don't bear the cost of the discipline process when one certificate really engaged the process. So that's to make sure that, um, the, you know, there, that the fact that the process is uh, was engaged 
there, there's a recovery of some of those costs um, in that process, um, but we don't issue fines. So we can't disgorge money. We can't say you have to pay the client X. We don't have those types of powers. And I would guess that typically where that's necessary, you know, you're probably dealing with somebody else's property anyways, that probably gets to MFDA and or IROC and or Provincial Securities Commission. So I don't potentially, I mean, not, not, I mean, sometimes if you're a fee for service planner, you might only be subject to our oversight. Um, but it's it's just not uh, a power in our toolbox. Um, and we are quite clear with complainants about that because really what we're our job is is to ensure compliance with our standards in the public interest. Our job is related to global public interest. And so we're looking to correct conduct that's offside of our of the public interest. Um, and so we don't have that ability to collect fines or to like in the criminal process, for example, some people might see in media reports in a criminal proceeding that somebody would be required to make restitution to a victim. That's not a process in our professional oversight. Um, do you know, I don't know if this is the case or not. This is, I'm completely ignorant here. You know, if I'm pursuing a civil, like if I have a you know financial planner who I perceive did me harm, um, you know, I submit my complaint to FP Canada and I separately pursue a civil action against that person. I'm assuming that your findings might be useful in civil court to demonstrate that in fact there was harm there. Is that have you seen that happen? We have seen that happen. We also have it go the other way sometimes. So it depends on which process oh. has moved first. And <laughs> okay. um, so that could be the case, but it's important to remember that every process is looking at the allegations with their own framework. So it might be that a finding that FP Canada makes may have a relationship to the allegations in the civil matter, or it may be different from the allegations in the civil matter, or the rules might be different at this that they're applying. So could be overlap and um, you know the complainant might say, well, I have a finding from FP Canada and courts, you should apply this finding. But the courts will of course make an independent assessment. It would likely just be one piece of information in that proceeding, um, but not determinative of the outcome of that civil proceeding. Perfect. Um, and my final set of questions for you, Demian, would be you know your chance to reach out to uh, the audience here and, and say, if you, um, are in a position where you suspect that a client might submit a complaint. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for that certificant? Well, there would be no obligation at that might submit a complaint stage to report that to FP Canada. So I'll just be upfront about that. If there is a complaint submitted, that does need to be reported to FP Canada. But if you just suspect that, and I want to be a little careful here, Jason, because I know that uh, firms and employers, as well as some of the other um, compliance regulatory bodies have rules about connecting with the client when there might be a complaint. And I don't want to say anything that's offside of someone's employer's position on this. Um, so I feel that I should stay away from this one, but there's no obligation to report that to FB Canada. From my own personal perspective, as a professional, I think that sometimes complaints can be the result of a misunderstanding or miscommunication or potentially a failure to communicate. Um, and so I would suggest that one way to avoid or mi- 
minimize or mitigate complaints is to really ensure open dialogue with one's clients, uh, because where the client understands uh, why something has happened, where the client receives a response when something's gone wrong, where the client is engaged and listened to, I think there can be, not every complaint can be resolved that way, but really you as the planner know your client best and you know what's happened and you have an opportunity to engage with that client. And I always think that openness, transparency and dialogue are the best approach. So I'd say that personally, that would be my advice with respect to professional obligations. You don't have to report to us every time you think a client may be upset with your conduct. And the other one I would add, and I know it doesn't affect every certificate, but if you are independent, you'll have an ENO insurer as well. And I think they would take a similar view that it's worth talking to them before you uh, get too far down the path of dealing with that you know, prospect of client complaint. So that's, that's good. I, I, and I think, you know, it, it's prudent advice. I know sometimes it's hard because you, you know, you feel like I can just fix this problem. Um, and actually, I would say, I think this is actually, I'm pivoting a little bit from complaints, but if you think about a conflict of interest, for example, I think sometimes what happens is that with hindsight, things are easier to identify than they are in the moment. And I would suggest that most people and all of our certificates are always trying to do what's right. They're at, they're, 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 they've become a financial planning professional because they want to help people because they want to support people. And, and so their intentions are in the right place. And if you realize that something has gone offside or that, you know, there's a conflict that you didn't disclose and you recognize it, you know, in the middle of the night, one night, and it comes to you and you think, Oh my gosh, I didn't provide written disclosure of this conflict three months ago just do it the next day or the next opportunity with a client have that discussion. Like there's all it's, these are for people <laughs> situations are in flux. We're all busy and we're all trying to do what's right. So I would say that if something happened and you realize it, have that dialogue with the client, don't, don't try and hide it or bury it or hope no one notices engage with it. That's the professional response, right. And leverage the trust that you've built with that client. That's, that's great advice. Um, and then, Demian, what about if you know that a complaint has been submitted? So now, you know, I, I become aware, you know, I get contact from FP candidates as this client. I don't, does it, would I know which client submitted a complaint? I probably would, regardless of whether would, the name is in there. You would, because that is part of, out of fairness, our complainants are told that their complaint, the actual form will be provided to the certificate. We don't want to be a middle, per, a middle person and interpret an issue because there could be something in a complaint that we don't recognize as being important, but the certificate here is like recognizes that this is picking up on something. So our, when filing a complaint with FB Canada, uh, we don't accept the anon an anonymous complaint. Um, the complaint you have full knowledge that the certificate will receive a copy of the complaint. Um, and my final question then is, what about if you suspect that a bar to certification might apply to you? You need to disclose it. It's part of your professional obligations and failing to disclose it uh, could actually create another breach of our rules. So really you should disclose it and then you should engage in our process and explain to us why, despite that barrier, 
you should, you are of good character and should remain certified. And you will be given and afforded the opportunity to provide your side of the story. So rest assured that in our process, we want to hear from you. We want you to provide us with your explanation. It doesn't mean that in every instance, your explanation will be the one that governs the day, but you will have that opportunity. Perfect. Um, thanks so much, Damien. I, you know, you talked about transparency and openness, and I think you've, uh, you're have living and breathing that right here. So really appreciate that. Um, do you have any last minute uh, thoughts, comments for us? Anything you would like to say to those listening? No, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you, Jason. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, I hope that uh, everyone listening today recognizes that we really are here to operate in the public interest, but that we see our certificates as part of that public interest process. And uh, we are core to our principles is transparency and fairness. And I think anyone who has engaged in our process, either um, through a complaint, which you know is unfortunate, but a small number of our certificates, or who's served as a volunteer and seen the process in that way, I hope that they would also say to you that the process is fair, it's transparent, um, and we're, we really do invite you to please read the guidance and advice uh, published by the conduct review panel. Please take a look at the disciplinary decisions that are published, and you know you can see how long those decisions are and how much the panel goes into detail to support the allegations. You can see the rigor of our process in those 30, 40 page decisions. Um, so, you know, I invite you, I invite our certificates, I invite members of the public to come and take a look at our process. I think that you'll find that everything I've said is actually true. Perfect. Well, thanks so much, Damien. Enjoy the rest of your day. And again, really appreciate coming on. Thanks, Jason. It was great to speak with you. Okay, uh, the one follow-up note here, of course, Demian was right. Uh, so the CFP board US um, implemented their technology rule October 1st of 2019. Um, FP Canada implemented their technology rule September 8th, 2021. Demian said she was pretty sure it was the fall of 2021. There you go, good stuff, Demian. Um, and not that I disagreed with her, I was just wrong in my initial statement and she corrected me, uh, rightly so. So September 8th, 2021 for the FP Canada technology rule. Okay, the number for today's episode is eight. The number for today's episode is eight. Hope you'll join us again in two weeks when we'll have our next episode and enjoy your continued studies. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for joining us. You'll be able to do your quiz by creating an account and subscribing for $15 a month or $150 a year at businesscareercollege.com. Those who subscribe on an annual basis will also have access to three half-day continuing education seminars covering a variety of topics and capturing a range of different continuing education credit requirements. In order to get your credits for this episode, you'll have to do a short five-question quiz. You'll need the number that I went over just after the interview, the object that I displayed at the beginning of the interview, and you'll also have to recall a few details, nothing too challenging from the episode. Once you have completed the quiz, within the course where you did the quiz, you'll be able to click at the top right corner, and from there, you'll be able to choose the option to view wall certificate. That's how you'll see your CE credits. Hang on to that, although the system will hang on to it as well. 
I would like to acknowledge the efforts of a few people in getting this episode to air. Jocelyn Lord, Rennie Wong, and Sushami Pamalupaket are the amazing marketing team at We Know Training, which is Business Career College's parent company. Sush also does our video content. Joseph Tong composed the theme music and does the sound editing for every episode, as well as uploads the episodes to all audio platforms. Maria Nguyen takes care of all our CE approvals. 